Dear listeners, welcome to Faces of Digital Health, a podcast about digital health and how healthcare systems adopt technologies. I am your host, Tiasha Zaitz, and this is the fifth part of a short series about AI in healthcare. You will hear about AI models in the field of stroke with Vince Madai and Michelle Ligne from Charité Hospital in Berlin. They both work on predictive models for decision support systems for the treatment of strokes. Vince is a senior medical AI researcher at Charité with an MD and a PhD in medical neuroscience and an MA in medical ethics. And Michelle is a machine learning engineer with extensive experience in applying predictive algorithms in healthcare. Apart from the current state of stroke treatment research and development, we talked about the state of digital health in Germany compared to Israel, and we also touched upon ethical issues surrounding AI, such as data bias and data privacy. In healthcare, challenges in data acquisition are reducing opportunities to save lives and are opening many ethical questions. Enjoy the conversation and do listen to other episodes as well. The previous featured Bill Rogers from Orbita, a leading provider of conversational AI for healthcare. The third episode featured Tadej Batilinov from the University Medical Center in Ljubljana. He explained the state of AI in diabetology. You can also hear about AI in radiology with Wajin Kim, Chief Medical Information Officer at Nuance. And the first episode gives you a slight overview of the potentials AI could bring in a broader sense to patients. You can also read about all these topics on our website www.facesofdigitalhealth.com. Do subscribe to the podcast to be notified about the next episode automatically. The last part coming out next week, will feature Bart DeWitt, who will talk about the dilemma surrounding AI and the value of our data. Now, to stroke research. Uh, Michelle, Vince, just for beginning, let's uh, revise a little bit the signs of stroke. Uh, they're well known. Numbness in the arms, problems with speaking fluently, the brain is not getting, getting enough blood. And then eventually somebody calls an ambulance if you're not alone. So what exactly happens when a patient reaches a, the hospital? What's the procedure like there? I would like to, to start the answer by saying the stroke is, as you just mentioned, it's well known because it's one of the world diseases. So in, uh, European, in the European Union or in Europe, over one million people per year actually get a stroke. So it's a, it's a really big uh, public health problem. And generally, we have two types of stroke. Um, in stroke, it's always about we have a sudden um, lack of blood supply in a certain brain area. And this can happen due to two reasons. Either it's a bleed where um, a blood vessel ruptures, an artery ruptures, and a brain tissue dies, or actually a blood clot is blocking a vessel, blocking an artery, and the area which is supplied by that artery dies. Now, this is important uh, regarding your question, because this is something we need to decide first when a patient comes to the hospital. So the moment when a patient with stroke signs comes to the hospital, neuroimaging is done, CT, for example, or an MRI, 
to check if it's a bleed or if it's the other type of stroke, which we call ischemic, so the no, no blood stroke. And this is actually the type of stroke that we are working on. And after this, um, within the first few hours of the stroke, doctors can uh, apply causal therapy. So we need to get rid of this blood clot. And this we can use either by giving a medication. This is an older therapy, a medication that's supposed to um, dissolve this blood clot. Or a newer therapy is to use a medical device and really to take this blood clot out of the vessel. So to which extent is the treatment of stroke improving if you look at the last decade or 20 years? For example, um, with new technologies, new biomarkers are in development. So just from the science perspective, how complex is the field getting? I think there are two sides to this question. So the one is uh, there are improvements how to treat stroke. I just mentioned this uh, to using this device. We call this mechanical thrombectomy. This is uh, this has been developed for a long time, but uh, since a few years, it's shown that it actually helps a lot in certain patients. And I think certain patients is here uh, the important word because a lot of the other technical development is focused on finding the right patient uh, for this therapy. So to get away from the let's treat everyone in the, in the first few hours, but trying to um, select the patient for the appropriate treatment. And this is what makes the field now more and more and more complex, especially if AI is added to it. So where does the AI come in? What is the current status of decision support systems? How do uh, doctors decide which patient is eligible for what? Basically, there are two um, two ways how we can look at decision uh, uh, support. Um, one is, can we get to the decision faster? So there are systems that, for example, now there are startups working on uh, systems that can show the vessel which is blocked, for example, automatically in, in scans, uh, supposedly making, making then the decision faster. So this is, this is one aspect of decision support. And the other aspect is what I just mentioned, is selecting the right patients. So there are startups working on automated perfusion al analysis and, and other analyses of images to, to help the physician select the patients for the current treatments. And what we are working on um, in the Prediction 2020 project is full clinical decision support. So based on the outcome of the patient after treatment, to give the treating neurologist um, an idea which therapy the patient uh, could get and what to what outcome this could lead. And this outcome is then uh, calculated. So an AI model is used to calculate the outcome. Uh, can we stop there a little bit? So can you tell me a little bit more um, how the whole project started developing? So you're working in the Charité Hospital. How did you identify what you're going to try to address and um, how far is the whole uh, model? Uh, so right now we're in uh, the depth of development. We already have initial models uh, based on clinical data and we're now working and uh, models also based on a framework for basic models on imaging data. Basically, where we start, uh, we are an academic group, but we're very product-oriented. So we think that the way to bring uh, the change into patients' life is to translate what we do scientific and bring it into a product that can be used in the clinics and go beyond just uh, publishing papers. What we try to develop are systems to identify what would be the patient outcome 
based on acute data. That means that once the patients are arriving to the hospital, we can immediately analyze the data which is already available in the clinical routine, which are uh, the clinical measurements which are done in the emergency room, together with imaging which is done in order to exclude hemorrhage, brain bleed that Vince mentioned before. And we're using that data in order to inform uh, the physicians what would be uh, the patient outcome with that treatment or another, and therefore help to identify better which uh, treatment is supposed to uh, be most beneficial for the patients. Is there already a clinical trial going on that would prove or just show how well the model works and how useful is this decision support system? So as Michelle mentioned, we're still in the, in the development phase. So uh, we develop technology. Uh, we develop the technology that can integrate this clinical data, the imaging data with the retro, uh, retrospective data that we have at the moment. Showing it on this retrospective data is the prerequisite for first uh, clinical testing. And we're quite far away from that, which is, I would say, a general challenge for, for AI-based decision support systems that the clinical validation will take quite a long time. In your uh, knowledge uh, of the whole um, um, area, how fast do you think that AI models can go from the development phase to the actual clinical practice Because on the one hand, technology is improving very quickly, but the demands or the requirements for clinical validations are not. You know, you still need to test things slowly with patients. So what's your prediction? How many years, for example, does it take from one thing to be developed to come to the clinical practice? Before I answer that question, I would like to um, touch upon something that you, you just said before. In the end, these AI systems that now start to be used in the clinical settings are just tools. So we really have to always think about what kind of medicine is standing behind the application of such AI tools. And if you, um, if you analyze it, you will actually see that most of these systems will lead to a precision medicine approach. Now, precision medicine means we try to identify subgroups to provide tailored uh, therapy to these subgroups to in total improve uh, therapy. Now, what we can see in the field of oncology that actually has used precision medicine for the first time, it unfortunately often happens that once you have preliminary results that indicate, oh, these subgroups benefit, Unfortunately, often validation is not done. The, the idea is then, oh, we can see it. Would you withhold such a good therapy from the patients? But it's not validated. And in the end, the field now suffers a bit from unvalidated precision medicine approaches. So I would say uh, it often sounds negative, like, oh, how many years will it take? I would phrase it differently. We need those years to make sure that it actually really helps the patients. We need to validate it. And we can't have less scrutiny than for non-precision medicine approaches. So it really depends on the system to answer your question how many years. Uh, if you just think about it that uh, one clinical trial can, can take one to two years alone and you might even have to perform two because for regulation and maybe even for the final RCT, then I would say four, five, maybe even more years sounds realistic. So if I understand correctly, uh, models are already used because they need to be tested. And in a way, you're predicting that the outcome would still be better for the patient than it would be without the use of such a system. I think Vince meant specifically the example uh, in oncology. Uh, generally, I think in, in healthcare, um, there 
like AI models have to be validated and certified according to which paradigm they're used on. And the first uh, AI systems that are now actually that get uh, regulatory approval now, the, most of them are diagnostic. So it means a system that can find, you know, a clot in medical imaging that identifies a patient that might have a certain diagnosis in the, in the images. They do not give therapy recommendation. So and this, this is a big difference. These systems are much easier to validate. In the end, you just... I mean, just, it's also hard, but you have to show that uh, it shows with high enough accuracy the diagnosis in the images that, that uh, the system is supposed to show. The moment we come to, to clinical decision support, so CDSS, then the validation becomes much, much harder because we need to really show the clinical benefit for the patient when the doctors use this system. And this takes the trials we talked about. Maybe to add on top, uh, there are different uh, certification levels according to what medical use is done. And the certification levels, uh, Vince mentioned the term validation, but here we will talk about different steps of criteria for the different certifications. So if it's a decision support system, it's like one step above that is demanded by the reg regulatory bodies uh, than the diagnostic systems. When it comes to stroke, even if you're having a stroke, it might not be seen on a CT scan. You are developing a solution that's based on uh, image analysis. So what does this mean if something is not seen on a CT? How does this influence the whole development of decision support systems? So from the machine learning perspective, when we build a model, our assumption, um, main assumption is that the information is there. So our assumption is that the information that we need to know to assess the patient's uh, status or benefit from the treatment is in the imaging. And this is something which is true also for medical doctors when they diagnose. Neither a medical doctor nor the most sophisticated algorithm would be able to extract the information if the information is not there. So this is the main assumption. That said, while there are many things that can be invisible for the human eye, an algorithm um, can detect uh, more sophisticated patterns that may be also invisible for the human eye in some cases. From a clinical point of view, there is a reason if you don't. So let's assume the, the patient really has a stroke. There's a reason why you don't see the stroke in the CT scan. That was the example that you used. So either the stroke is very, very small and mild, Uh, or it can be super early, for example, that could also be a reason. So if you take this together with the clinical information, you actually have, again, a pattern. So I, I wouldn't say that this is a problematic case. It's just another subgroup of patients that an AI system needs to learn to deal with. In essence, it's a good sign if there's nothing seen on a scan. For the patient? Basically, yes, okay. if the patient yeah. doesn't have a stroke. So this is the point. You do a CT scan and the patient doesn't have a stroke. That's good for the patient. But you could have the case where the patient actually does have a stroke, but you don't see anything in the imaging. Then this constitutes another stroke pattern that we need to be able to deal with. Maybe uh, it's important to mention that um, certain things are visible in imaging only a certain time after the stroke. So it could also indicate that it's just not visible yet, but in two or three hours it would be visible and it could still be a bad stroke. So it indicates a, the severity of the current stroke, but also uh, it has relation to time. In an interview I recently had with Wajin Kim, who's the chief medical information officer at Nuance, and he's a radiologist, he mentioned that uh, when it comes to AI, the really rich data is not that 
much in images, but actually in radiology reports. So from that perspective, maybe a comment from your side and uh, just uh, an additional explanation on, okay, so you're working with images for analysis and model development, but what are the other data sources that you take into account when you're developing your solution? That's a very good question. So again, we, we have to make our framework applicable to what settings we have for the problem we try to solve. And basically, we would try to leverage every data which is available when the patient is at the hospital in the acute settings. As I mentioned before, time um, equals life in that case. So we're not going to try to make uh, try to do things based on additional blood tests or genomics or things which cannot be acquired exactly at the moment uh, before the doctor needs to decide on a treatment. So basically, we try to leverage the maximum from there. In stroke, um, there are no radiological reports. Uh, we do have the good images and the clinical data. We do try to integrate all information which is possible to, to acquire, but again, to, to make it applicable for these clinical settings. I would also maybe add that, uh, in my opinion, so from a clinical point of view, radiology reports are a different use case. You said they are a goldmine of information. I think radiology reports are definitely a goldmine for, for startups and companies working on it because they want to provide the physicians with faster diagnosis that the radiologists can basically identify crucial patients faster, but also have a bigger volume of patients that they can work on by making the report writing faster. This is not the same use case as a clinical decision support system that should give support to the, um, to the physician how to treat a certain patient given at hand. And for this, we don't want basically somebody to look at the pictures, make a diagnosis and use that information. We would like to take the whole image with all potential information in the image. If we go to the development of AI, one of the discussions in AI development is an interpretability. And uh, Michelle, perhaps you can explain a little bit what interpretability means and why is it so widely discussed in the field? Happy to answer that, especially that we are at the moment exactly writing a use case of comparing different interpretability methods in different type of models in the use case of uh, stroke. So the idea of interpretability is not to just build a model and make it uh, apply predictions, but to actually understand what are these predictions are based on. So if you look at the very simple case of trying to predict what would be the patient outcome based on certain uh, features, clinical data like age and gender um, neurological scores, then an interpretation would be, for example, what is the features rating, um, how much each feature supported that prediction. We can make it also patient-based, so to for each patient understand based on what the prediction was done, but also we can make it uh, use the full cohort and then just have a general scoring of the features. In images, for example, with uh, convolutional neural networks, with image analysis, we can also track it back and try to understand what part of the image uh, was informative to understand uh, the prediction. So if we try to predict what would be if the patient outcome would be good or bad, we can try to then apply interpretability methods on the model uh, and see what part of the image was then used most for the prediction. 
So what are the dilemmas uh, in the field regarding uh, interpretability? Some scientists say that if uh, um, an AI model is very accurate, but we don't really understand how it works, it doesn't matter because the accuracy is the important part. While the others believe that we do need to understand how the decision was reached if we want to trust uh, a specific system. If performance was the only measure that would play a role here, I would agree. If we had a system that could show accuracy 0.9599, whatever, and it would work, then we could be agnostic to how it works uh, because we can just say it does work, it does what it's supposed to do. And we actually, it has been argued, um, and I, I agree, that we um, tend to accept this uh, uncertainty also in other areas of medicine where things are just uh, done and there is no explanation given. However, I think that we, we have a different case here because performance is not the only issue. I would like to actually de distinguish between interpretability and explainability to answer this question. Interpretability is what developers use when they actually develop their system. So we see this ourselves that it's very helpful to understand why a certain uh, performance measure, how it is tied to the inputs. And we also want this to actually um, prevent errors because you could have errors in the system Uh, that the prediction is actually not based on what it's supposed to be based on. This is the one thing. Second, this interpretability will be required by regulatory bodies. They will want to see how your system is actually, uh, why it is doing what it's supposed to, uh, to be doing. So we will have to provide the regulatory bodies this information as well. The difference between interpretability and explainability is that explainability is what the user will want to see. Let's assume a clinical doctor or even a patient who wants to know how that works. You will not provide them with the technical terms and the technical maps of interpretability. You have to somehow translate this into some qualitative measure and some nice Uh, you know, UX UI, so that they can can understand this. If you look at actually the literature about clinical decision support, majority of authors and doctors say we don't want black boxes. We want to understand why these systems actually how the systems do what they do. And patient organizations and ethicists say that also patients need to have at least the theoretical possibility to check these systems to uh, to retain patient autonomy. So what you're referring to basically is trust that is needed in, in the clinical practice. In a recent post, you mentioned that for the maximum success in AI development for healthcare, you would need healthcare professionals that actually also know a lot about machine learning and artificial intelligence. Because if you put developers and clinicians together, they speak so different languages that it's hard for them to understand each other. So maybe just a comment from that perspective. You two are um, working in Charity. So how, what's the symbiosis or collaboration with the doctors? How do you see the thoughts from doctors? Are they more afraid of new things? Are they really interested and eager to, to learn more about AI? Because it is a complex field. I think the key here in development of modern machine learning system in healthcare is to have interdisciplinary uh, teams working together. This is uh, what we have in our group where we have medical doctors working with machine learning engineers and software developers. 
And this is the key to understand the needs and the necessities and the language of the medical doctors and the uh, necessities in the clinical setting and translate that into uh, the development in the framework of machine learning um, or any technology development and phrasing these problems accurately. Completely agree. And I would like to add what you also touched upon in the question is that I, I think one of the approaches in the past also taken by, by larger companies was I hire the best engineers, put them into one room with, with the best doctors, I close the door and after six months I come back and they provide me with the greatest solution. And I think, uh, as, as you just said, the languages of the fields are so drastically different that it will take maybe even years, especially with changing teams, until some kind of common language has been developed to even understand the problem. So uh, next to what Michelle just said, in our group, we also have quite a few. So we have medical doctors with machine learning slash AI knowledge. And uh, these can basically function as translators uh, between the fields. They, they can be in, in all meetings and they understand the medical problem, but they also understand the technical problems. And it happens very often that here we can uh, take very quick shortcuts, understanding that a certain uh, direction is, is uh, although, let's say, from the medical side or the technical side, it sounds promising. We realize that uh, in the synthesis, uh, it, it's not a good idea and we take a different, different approach. And this is an iterative process that we constantly do from engineering part and the clinical part. And you mentioned the the fear of the doctors or the interaction with the doctors uh, that can sometimes correspond to that in a not optimal way or have some fears. Um, and I think this is an important part of the iteration to actually address uh, those needs and necessities and, and exactly those fears in order to try to answer them also in a technological way, yeah. like explainability, for instance. You also asked how is the uptake from the medical side regarding AI systems? It's very, very different. It's really dependent on the individual, but also the clinic. Some doctors are very conservative. Uh, some doctors are really afraid because they don't understand it and think they, the idea is really to replace doctors, although everybody in the field knows that we are aiming at basic combination of natural intelligence and artificial intelligence. And some other clinics uh, are very positive about it. And I definitely see that neuroradiologists are really the, the ones at the forefront here because they have been using technology for a long, long time. They are very technology-affiliated um, anyway. and they, uh, So I think they will really push these clinical decision support systems and then other fields will slowly uh, start following. We read in the media often about, you know, what companies are working on, what kind of algorithms are in development. So that's why I always like to ask what's the contrast with the current reality if you're a patient you think you're going to a sci-fi hospital and then you end up with a paper prescription to go to the lab or something absolutely and here um, i think it's uh, much going back to also the regulation and certification process the wheels of the healthcare system are much slower also because of that, but also just think about uh, the differences between hospitals and countries. These are completely different system. And each hospital, you need to integrate it uh, many times differently, the technology. Um, and it has to be uh, done in a specified way. And I think that slows the process uh, down a lot. And um, in that regard, I think uh, Europe is at the moment really not in the best place compared to the US. And I think 
um, the role of regulation here um, and the new laws that are coming out um, have a much more say in that than the technology development. The technology development is as fast in any other field of AI. But uh, what it has to go through in order to come uh, to life, to actually be treated for patients, is much harder, um, both ethically, uh, regulatory-wise, legal-wise, etc. And this is where there is a lot more influence of, of these laws than the development of technology itself. Um, it's not only a question of technology. So I think uh, in healthcare, we will always lag behind uh, a lot, several years, or even maybe even more. Because Michelle just mentioned the regulatory reasons, but of course there are, there are other reasons. There are political reasons, there are cultural reasons, and in the end, a healthcare system is a very, very complex, very fine-tuned behemoth of millions of things that need to be done in certain sequences. I would argue it's not a good idea to disrupt such a system because then our healthcare system will collapse. So this idea of a new technology will disrupt a field and completely change it, it's not applicable to healthcare at all. So every system needs to find its place through regulation, through uptake, through clinical validation to replace a certain sequence of workflows in the big workflow. And this will take a long time for each system to enter. You are working in Germany. What is the current uh, state of digital health and e-health regulation there? How are things changing? Next question, please. No, no, I'm kidding. It's, it's getting a bit better with the the current time point with the new healthcare minister. He's pushing a new agenda. Um, unfortunately, like uh, always in Germany now, all the lobby organizations are start uh, are starting to try to change to ta- change these laws these uh, uh, that are supposed to to come. What is so. what is in preparation? If you can be a little bit more specific for the speakers, you know, that are not from Germany. Very good point. So, for example, in the area of mobile healthcare solutions. There is now an idea for a law that uh, is supposed to be passed next year that doctors will be able to prescribe digital therapeutics. So instead of prescribing medications, they can prescribe basically an app-based solutions. For example, let's assume for the um, prevention of stroke um, or for uh, the treatment of depression and other, um, other use cases like this. Um, if this law comes into place, then Germany would actually be at the forefront of such developments. So we are very optimistic and hope that it, it's going to pass. But like I said, uh, now now some lobby organization try to water it down and we will see who will win. Michelle, can you contrast that a little bit uh, with the fast development and changes in regulation in Israel? Israel is really at the forefront. I mean, do you? I mean, you're from Israel, but do you follow how changes are happening there? Yeah, things happen really fast in Israel. Um, there are many um, components that come uh, there together. Um, I think the very beginning, one of them is the size of the country. We're talking about a very uh, all, overall about 8 million people. The healthcare system is very centralized. There are two, three main Krankenkasse or um, health insurances that have all the data um, aggregated together. So actually, uh, which is very different to what happens in in Europe, um, actually all data is centralized. So developing this kind of healthcare models is also very easy from a technological perspective, beside the fact of having um, a very vast high-tech culture that uh, really promotes that and uh, so so much technology already available and technology development, connections to to the relevant funds uh, in the U.S., 
uh, in the U.S. market. So the, everything is there uh, together, both from the medical side and from the technological side. Uh, so these things together bring it a very, very quick developments. Yeah, and I know from uh, my friends there, there are now a lot of solutions that are now integrated already in the health insurances that you can use that are really in the forefront. Is it uh, by any chance easier for you to scale in Europe, you know, because by the time your solution or anything that's developed reaches the market, it uh, it already has to comply with really, really strict regulations, maybe stricter than in other countries. Why wouldn't you just develop things in Israel because it's so much easier and the environment is so much more supportive? That's a great question. And we're actually um, where and in touch with certain bodies there to perhaps expand to that market as well, because it's so inviting. So we're not giving up on Europe yet, but uh, we're definitely looking for scaling options in different countries, including Israel. Europe is not making it easy to, to develop something here. On the other hand, being uh, in an environment uh, that you know the best, the medical doctors in our team are medical doctors trained in Germany, that you know best, uh, that you can have the um, uh, the testing sites near then, all these advantages uh, which which also need to be taken into account. So taking everything together, we are happy at the moment where we are, especially because we're still in the development phase but uh, i absolutely agree once uh, the moment we realized that it would not work then we would of course not jeopardize the project but uh, probably move and um, what michelle just said is for example israel they do a lot of development but the overwhelming majority of the development is aimed at the u.s market it's not aimed at the european union market due to all these these reasons ethical dilemmas in ai vince this is your field what exactly are you worried about? Where are discussions happening mostly? There are many more probably, but two that, that uh, I specifically uh, like and specifically um, also are related to our work. One is the question of data bias, which is really the question if we develop a system based on data, let's say from Germany, retrospective data from Germany, it might not be directly um, applicable in at other places. So it we probably cannot use it in Asia without having to adjust the model. So this is a very important point because it's completely unclear at the current time point what the required granularity is here. So as, as a, maybe an extreme example, if we use data from Berlin, can we apply it on patients in Munich? Um, so this would be the other extreme, not Europe, Asia, but really. So where is the cutoff? How how can you um, how can you show that your system is generally applicable to stroke patients? And what will regulation uh, require that that you can show this? So this is a very very big a very very big issue. Uh, the other issue is, um, in my opinion, is data privacy, because in the European Union, data privacy is, is very strong, in Germany especially, and I'm, I'm absolutely in favor of data privacy. Um, however, this very strong data privacy needs to very, very, it's very hard for us to acquire data in Europe. And one problem, uh, and we for AI systems, we need actually a lot of data. So in my opinion, there was never a fair discussion in the public, in the European public, but especially German public, that increasing data privacy will lead to a lack of um, AI-based tools that actually could help you to save people's lives or improve their quality of life. In the end, that's an ethical dilemma because we have two basically uh, goods here. One is data privacy and the other one is the greater good. 
And usually we discuss this in a public discussion, an ethical discussion, and we come to a good compromise. And I don't think this discussion has happened. If the discussion happens and people in Europe say and in Germany say, we want data privacy, we don't care about better uh, systems, that's fine. But I don't see that this discussion has happened in a fair way. When I had an interview with an American doctor who is basically an IT specialist, he mentioned that, um, yes, data privacy is really important. But usually when you talk to patients, you know, when they need solution and when they need to get well, somehow they don't care that much about data privacy. So I think it's a, a really important question regarding education. Are we willing to take time to understand what steps need to be taken to ensure the data privacy, you know, because consent and uh, passwords are things that a lot of solutions uh, enable, but um, people are not very mindful of what they need to do until something is wrong. I mean, the, the German uh, Minister of Health, he, he once said uh, that data privacy is a luxury of, uh, of healthy people. Um, now, this is a very provocative way to say it, but it, it's exactly, it's just uh, another way to look at uh, what, I, what I mentioned before, that a, a lot of people are not aware, for example, that um, they might have systems that would help them once they, they get sick. So this is exactly exactly this, this fair discussion that I mentioned, that, and this is directly re related also to, to another, maybe ethical, but another issue, other dilemmas in the field, and that is AI literacy that currently there are very actually a very very small community of, of especially in healthcare very small community of people who actually really understand this this topic fully but the majority of the of the public or the majority of the users of these clinical decision support system the doctors they don't understand it, what what is happening there at all so how do you want to have a fair public discussion about something that most people don't really understand Yeah, and I think it goes beyond healthcare. I mean, I'm not sure people are aware about how uh, the privacy setting work in their bank or their email either. So it's it's a general idea. I think here it's okay to talk about conceptual terms because you cannot expect or also not need uh, to understand the full technical details. I think you just need to understand the implications and uh, therefore it's good to have actually public bodies or... Um, Yeah, pub, uh, bodies of the state that are in charge of that in order for the greater good, so to say, as long as their uh, transparency is applied there. Yeah, so in the end, we have to rely on a chain of trust. We have regulators that need to take care of the privacy issues. We have software providers that need to follow those rules. And then, you know, in the end, you just trust, basically. Absolutely. And I think it's, it comes down in the end to a general trust in your state regarding how these things are done. In that context, I think what we're seeing in the last years, uh, probably due to social media, but also other, um, other developments, is that the, the trust in, in institutions, governments, but any other institutions, uh, scientific institutions, is eroding. And I'm not sure, therefore, that uh, going into the direction of, oh, we just have to pass good laws, so then people will trust the regulatory bodies, they will trust uh, um, the, the governments to do the right thing, is, is especially, if that would be especially helpful. 
Uh, I think what we can already do as as developers, but um, also researchers and people in the field, is to really in the field of AI in healthcare to really put the patient into into the perspective, so that we can really say what whatever we do, it's for the patients. It's totally fine that if somebody you know sacrifices several years of their lives to develop a system, that they will be you know reimbursed for this uh, when when their startup uh, makes the exit. But in the end, the system is to make uh, to improve, I don't know, stroke outcome or any other outcome. If I go to conferences in the field, I often, uh, it's very interesting from a technological point of view, from a clinical point of view, but you go out and nobody mentioned the patient directly. And now imagine you're a patient and you go to, and you would hear about this. And what you read is, uh, this makes it easier for the radiologist uh, to make the diagnosis and they can uh, diagnose more people, increase the volume so they can make more money. Then the idea, why, why would I why would I help the radiologist to make even more money? That's, I mean, great for the radiologist, but what's the benefit for me? But the indirect benefit is that more scans can be done, so the waiting times probably will be reduced or there's more availability for, for important scans. This is the main point, isn't it? One perhaps a little bit unrelated question, but still, you said that patients are not mentioned, but what about nurses? Where are they in this whole field of AI-supported uh, decision support systems? Uh, the reason why we're, at least as developers, why we focus on the um, doctors and not on nurses or many other people in the ho- that function in the hospital, like technicians and other people that do a lot of, actually, the major amount of work. I think the reason we focus is in the end, uh, when we develop a product, we need to sell it to someone. We care about who would do the regulations so we can bring it to market. And we care about who we need to convince in order to actually uh, to come to the market. Um, we do, of course, uh, mention the patient because he's the one which is affected by it more than anyone in the end. But when we want to bring it to a hospital, we, we need to address the decision makers. And I think this is why um, nurses and technicians and other functionalities in the hospitals are not often discussed. But again, and I emphasize this, it really depends on the product. I think there are many products, uh, for example, uh, that help with uh, the everyday uh, use of records that involve nurses and it's important to then then it involves other roles that are more relevant there. I would like to add here that uh, it's a very interesting question that you asked and I think we tend to develop the use cases based on the on the medical decisions um, Probably because uh, it really also, if you want to, especially think about startups, if you do a pitch, then then a use case, we we are going to, you know, improve the, uh, we're going to reduce the bad outcomes in stroke. That that is something that a lot of a lot of people intuitively and immediately will will qualify as as uh, that sounds good. I really think there might be many more use cases that are really uh, also interesting and important for AI in the fields of, of nursery, in the field of, of medical uh, technology, uh, making making maybe you know predictions about uh, about lab values and all this. But I, I I'm not aware that this is this is done a lot. Maybe I'm completely uh-huh. mistaken. But I think that. Uh, once these these methods are more established and there are companies that have the funds to 
to extend their technology to other use cases, I think they will they will find more use cases also in nursery and other fields. Oh, they are. Um, I know, for example, about a startup that works on actually improving the rate of using sterilizers in uh, patients' rooms. And this is relevant then for everyone who's in the patient room. And yeah. then I, I'm, I'm sure they also address every functionality which is uh, relevant there and not only uh, the physicians. Uh, but again, I think it really depends on the use case. And in the end, we always address the, the users. If the user is a doctor or the nurse, then the, it applies. Just one last question. Uh, if you wanted to apply your knowledge around stroke on another field in healthcare, maybe if you wanted to apply your knowledge about machine learning and stroke on another field in healthcare, what would be the next frontier you would focus on or you could focus on that's closest to the stroke research? The core of what we bring um, as a product is the technology of AI. And this is more of an engineering perspective. So the relevant fields would be not necessarily similar pathologies, uh, but actually similar data. So we're working at the moment on imaging data and clinical data in terms of tabular data. So every pathology which is represented by these data, um, like it could be, for example, Alzheimer's disease, uh, but also any other type of imaging, including clinical data, um, could be then relevant uh, and leveraged using our technology. And also completely other organs. So it's really just the pattern, the combination of imaging plus clinical data and predicting a certain outcome. So the moment this this uh, is there, then it's applicable to any any application that is is built uh, similarly. So that's a very optimistic outlook. We still we talk. We're still talking about a certain framework of question. We're talking about um, uh, prediction of categorical um, outcome, and we talk about imaging and tabular data. So it's quite broad, but um, yes. And it always depends, of course, again, on the availability of data, which, to be honest, is the, is the, the bigger challenge then. But we are, we're thinking about new use cases and uh, we, we hope to, um, to provide them also in the future. You've been listening to Faces of Digital Health. Find more topics, recaps and information about the show at www.facesofdigitalhealth.com. Stay tuned. Stay tuned.